You know, growing up, my mom and dad always told me that drugs were the enemy. And Jesus told me to love my enemies. Well, I guess that explains high school, doesn't it? There are Jews in the world. There are Buddhists. There are Hindus and Mormons and then... There are those that follow Mohammed's but I've never been one of them. Fie Jesu Domine, Dona Eis Requiem. Oh Lord, oh you are so big, so absolutely huge. Do you think maybe he's compensating for something? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. What do we learn? I don't know, sir. I don't fucking know either. I suppose you've already noticed that I am not on camera. You are welcome. Honestly, it wasn't getting any views, so why am I going to keep putting all the extra effort into making sure I'm dressed to do this if no one's gonna watch me. If I get some, like, comments and people like it better or whatever, fine. I'll do it again. Maybe I'll do both. I don't know. Anyway, maybe I'll make the video subscribe only and you guys can pay me to put my clothes on. <gasps> That's a weird concept. That's like Oli fans in reverse. Anyway, it's the fourth week of Easter. I don't know if you guys know that or not. I know that. Uh, the readings is John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. And I guess I'll read it instead of like including it into what the hell I'm going to say. Uh, so you're welcome, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, this is what the gospel says. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls out to his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought them all out on his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him since they do not know the voice of strangers. And Jesus used his figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Who enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to st steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Ooh, and that is how it rolls. Now, I always have to like think a little bit, you know? And it made me think that about our complicated relationships with the nations of the Middle East. We occasionally come across examples of the most brutal forms of justice. We read stories about people having their hands amputated for theft, a princess being stoned for adultery, the list goes on. However, we have to remember that horrific deeds have occurred throughout our Christian history too. 
Modern advancements include the humane treatment of wrongdoers and the just administration of justice. We're still working on that shit, too. I don't know if you realize this, but, you know, the morality of rehabilitation as opposed to retaliation is still developing very, very slowly because we like to inflict our pain, I guess. It sucks, but here we are. But it reminds me of a story in American history where our country almost acted out of retaliation rather than justice. I want to share it with you. See, following the end of the Revolutionary War, there was a handful of small groups of colonists still loyal to England that remained in America. These loyalists, as they were called, and the other colonists, who were now Americans, well, they had a very hostile relationship. And loyalists from Manhattan attacked and burned Tom's River, New Jersey. I mean, it's Jersey. And soon after, there was a loyalist named Philip White who returned to New Jersey to see his wife. Well, he was shot while attempting to flee after the New Jersey militia seized him. And rumors about this incident spread like wildfire. And by rowing to the British ship Britannia, Manhattan loyalists, led by Richard Lippincott, persuaded the captain to release Joshua Huddy, one of the colonists, in exchange for the prisoners. However, in retaliation for what they claimed to be Philip White's murder, the loyalists brought Huddy outside and they hung him. And the American populace was pissed. George Washington received a letter from a sizable contingent at Huddy's funeral, pleading with him to take action or they would. Seeing that mob justice was going to be imminent and a lynching was going to be a regular thing, that immediate action required him to do. Let's try that sentence again, shall we? Washington understood that mob justice was imminent and that immediate action was required. I can speak. I'm so happy with myself. See, so Washington first requested that the loyal uh, British commander turn over the guilty party in a letter. But that general kind of drug his feet a bit because asshole. And Washington's uncomfortable backup plan was then discussed with Congress. It involved hanging one of the British prisoners chosen randomly to make amends with the public and pay for Huddy's hanging, which was just as, I guess you could say, uh, irregular. Now, uh, Congress approved the idea and the prisoner was chosen randomly to die. His name was Captain Charles Asgill. Asgill. A-S-G-I-L-L. Now, it appeared as though Charles Asgill was going to be put to death since the British continued to refuse to hand over the guilty perpetrator. But the Americans hesitated to actually end this young man's life for a crime that he had not committed. But public was still calling for Huddy to receive justice. Now, if he were released, there would probably be a resurgence of mob justice against the loyalists. The French intervened and pleaded for Askill's life as Congress debated the matter, reminding the colonists of the obligation they owed for French support in that, you know, recent conflict. So anyway, by using this weird workaround, 
the Americans freed Asgill instead of killing him. Even putting the question of populist appeasement aside, the justice issues remained challenging. There had been a murder of Joshua Huddy. However, it's not going to ever be appropriate to the American government to execute someone for that crime. Regardless of the parties, the murderer should have received punishment, not revenge. Making him an un making this unwilling man the sacrifice for the missing killer, that's not justice. It's a fascinating historical case. Because to atone for another man's sin, another was almost sacrificed. Now, speaking of cases in history, there was an innocent man who voluntarily gave his life for a criminal. I am the good shepherd, Jesus declared. For his flock, a good shepherd gives his life. Now, Charles Asgill came close to being an unwilling stand-in for Charles Lippincott's transgressions. But the source of all life, incarnate, here on earth, that son of God, he gave his life for each of us. Now, when a man or a woman lays down his or her life for another, we usually applaud, and unfortunately, these situations do occur. In Murfreesboro, Tennessee, in 1989, former NFL football player Jerry Anderson passed away on a Saturday morning. It was May 28th. See, two young boys were trying to cross over a dam that about 40 miles southeast of Nashville. And witnesses claimed that Anderson spotted them. And one or the other, or both, fell into the river as they were trying to cross a dam over that river. Now, Mr. Anderson jumped in the water and managed to get the little boys out, said Bill Todd, an officer on the scene. But witnesses said he went under two to three times, and it was around the fourth time that he stopped coming back up. He sacrificed his life to save those two kids. And of course, heroic deeds don't require you to be an American or a football player. For example, in 2011, on March 11th, one of the largest earthquakes ever recorded severely rocked eastern Japan. And the tsunami from Tohoku, a natural result of underwater earthquakes, caused Fukushima meltdown and a significant portion of the 20,000 fatality toll. And in the little village of Otsuki, which had a tsunami warning system, Fujio Koshida worked as a firefighter. Now, a loud, a loud alert was on top of the fire station, warning everyone to get to higher ground before the wave arrived. And Koshida rushed into the fire station to activate the alarm, but couldn't because the earthquake had knocked out the power. So he took a massive bell out of storage. He carried it to the roof and rang it for all he was worth. All those who heard it fled. Kinoshida was eight, 57 years old. Now, a younger firefighter arrived at the station, but Kushida told him to save, leave, save himself. And he did so. Unfortunately, that building that he was standing on was shattered into splinters when the water entered. Kushida had spoken to the station a few days prior about the importance of not sacrificing oneself. 
But I guess that perspective changes when it's your life in danger to save others. And I want to let you know his body was never recovered. So who knows? Maybe when Tohoku 2 arrives, he'll just appear. That massive bell in one hand and the triumphant middle finger to nature in the other. That's what I like to think. See, anyone can display such bravery. Men aren't required. There's a blizzard that once caught up with a mother who was carrying a child across the hills of South Wales. Later, she was discovered dead in the snow, frozen. They continued looking, completely perplexed, because she wasn't wearing any outerwear, no jacket, nor sweater. And that's when they found their, her infant, half buried in the snow. All that clothing, the jackets, and all that stuff, they were encircling the infant, who was alive and well. That little child became David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of Great Britain during World War I. There's no greater love than this, where a brother will give his life for another. It's bravery, selflessness, willingness to give one's life to save another. It's so admirable. But this passage from God's John's Gospel doesn't instruct us in that way. I am the Good Shepherd, declares Jesus. For his flock, a good shepherd gives his life. Now don't get me wrong, a transaction between equals is not what occurred on Calvary. A dude gave his life for some stupid sheep, not for other men. Sorry, I know I just called you all sheep. I can't help it. I'm an idiot too. You know, the ones who probably really should be insulted are the sheep. After all, they never murdered a neighbor, never gossiped amongst themselves. They never intentionally harm itself or steal from its master. Sheep are reasonably upright animals as measured by their criteria. However, I doubt any one of us would really risk our lives to save a stinky sheep. I have heard of some extreme measures a dude took to protect his dog. See, he was traveling back from the Caribbean cruise aboard a boat. And a youngster was playing with the man's dog on the deck by to tossing uh, sticks for him to, you know, catch. Well, one of those fl throws flew a little bit too far and landed in the water over the rail. Surprise, surprise, the dog just dove right in after it. Just goofied it all the way down, I bet, too. Yahoo! Anyway, the dog's owner ran up to the captain and ordered him to turn the ship around to save the animal. A dog needs that ship to stop, and the captain remarked, I can't do that. The dog's owner says, Then will you stop for a man? And he dove overboard. Well, naturally, it's ship came to stop after that and the man and dog were saved it's kind of ridiculous isn't it but you know what i hope you realize how ridiculous everything is in the eyes of god the creator of the universe gave their life in sacrifice for people like you and me they removed their princely robes to bear the cross of suffering and death they traded their glorious crown for a torturous one made of thorns. And he did it for idiots like you and me. 
Can we comprehend that incredible truth? Are you deserving of that shit? No, I'm not. You know, I recently read about Guam. Snakes are currently their most difficult to solve problem. Between 6,000 to 12,000 of them per square mile. These slithery issues, frequently around 8 feet long, sometimes longer, have wiped out 70% of Guam's native bird species. This issue is completely man-made, by the way. During World War II, Guam used to be snake-free, but brown tree snakes found themselves smuggled in military shipments from Australia, New Guinea, and the Solomon Islands. Currently, there's no way for Guam to eradicate these foreign invaders. And according to the Bible, man has always had a snake problem. We carry disease wherever we go. We are a plague. We find a way to use the atoms of fantastic energy and we made bombs. We created internal and combustion engines which contaminate the atmosphere and drive up temperatures to where, hey, grass doesn't die in Green Bay. What the fuck? We have all these amazing abilities to harvest the natural remedies from the environment we produce the most addictive of medications. Our greatest teacher sacrificed his life for beings that act in such a way. Idiotic creatures like you and me. How could he have done it? I don't know. I just know how it ended out. He found a way to transform sheep into gods of sons and daughters. And because of this, he saved his, he gave his life. I don't know why he had to do that thing that he did, but the outcome's pretty astounding. According to theolog theologian uh, Helmut Thieleke, I see myself at the last judgment as and as at an earthly trial. My identity has to be established before the proceedings begin, but there's an interruption. The Supreme Judge has hardly put me to question. Who are you? Before my satanic accuser breaks in and answers for me. Who is he, you ask? Oh, I'll tell you. He is the one who's done such and such and failed to do such and such. He has ignored the plight of his neighbors because he himself has always the neighbor. He has been silent when he ought to have confessed. The gifts you have given him he has not made humble but proud. He goes on and on for a long time in this strain. But then the counsel for the defense interrupts. He is the exalted son of God. Oh, father and judge, he says, the prosecutor has spoken the truth. This man has all these things behind him. But the accusation is without substance, for, he's no longer, for he no longer is what he has behind him. And although he who sits on the bench knows very well what Christ is saying, for the sake of the audience, he asks, who is he then? if he is no longer what he has behind him. To this, Christ replies, He has become my disciple and believed in me that you have met him in me and want to be his father as you are mine. Hence, I have canceled this past 
and nail the accusation to my cross. Who is he then, you ask? He is the one who accepted me, and thus gained the right of sonship that you have promised. Look upon him then as you look upon me. He is my brother and your son. This is the story, says Thelic, of our identity. I am the good shepherd, Jesus declared. For his flock, a good shepherd gives his life. No, honestly, I object to being grouped with sheep. But I know I'm an idiot. I know I smell a little funny. I know I'm not worthy of Jesus' sacrifice for me. Instead, I ought to be giving my life for him. It's still possible to begin today. Maybe I should devote the remainder of my life to him by his grace, by his teaching. I kind of hope you'll agree and join me. Anyway, this is all I got for today. It's the fourth Sunday of Easter. I love you and love each other. And remember, especially want to join me, there is no one who is not welcome. Because all are welcome. We'll just have to build a bigger table. What the fuck? I like to build shit. Don't you? Yay, Legos! Yay, Ikea! Anyway, catch you next time, fuckers. Peace.